0: to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. And this week we're going to be looking at the case of Belhaj and DPP. The citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 33. Now, those of you who are long-time listeners of the podcast may well recognise the name Belhaj in the context of other litigation that has come before the Supreme Court. In early 2017, I published an episode called Government on Trial that examined the case that Abdel Hakim Belhaj brought against the United Kingdom government because of the crucial role that it played in his arrest at Kuala Lumpur airport, his placement into CIA custody, and his rendition back to Libya, where he was tortured by the Gaddafi regime. In that case, the focus was on Jack Straw, who was the foreign secretary at the time, but the current case that we are looking at today is based around a role played by intelligence analyst Sir Mark Allen. Human Rights Watch are supposed to have found confidential documents in Libyan government offices after the fall of the Gaddafi regime, including a fax from Allen in 2004 that says, quote, I congratulate you on the safe arrival of Mr. Belhaj. This was the least we could do for you and for Libya to demonstrate the remarkable relationship we have built over recent years. Amusingly, we got a request from the Americans to channel requests for information from Mr. Belhage through the Americans. I have no intention of doing any such thing. The intelligence about Mr. Belhage was British. I feel I have the right to deal with you direct on this. End quote. The Metropolitan Police investigated this matter and produced a dossier that was over 28,000 pages long. But in spite of this, the Director of Public Prosecutions, DPP, declined the option to prosecute because of insufficient evidence to do so. Unsurprisingly, Belhash felt that there was a clear logical gap here between, on the one hand, a vast amount of documentation that appears to clearly point the finger at Allen's alleged involvement and, on the other hand, the decision not to actually prosecute. The Crown Prosecution Service held an internal review of the decision with the aid of a senior prosecutor, but reached the same conclusion. There was a request that the potential evidence be disclosed, but that request was declined on the basis of national security and the classified nature of the documents. So that gives some of the background to the issues at stake here, but what in particular is this case all about? Well, Belhage applied for a judicial review of the decision not to prosecute Sir Mark Allen, given that it was allegedly inconsistent with the evidence that placed Allen right at the heart of the Metropolitan Police's investigation. The problem was that the original decision was based on documents that are highly secretive, and so the government made an application under Section 6 of the Justice and Security Act 2013, asking the court to declare that the judicial review represented, quote, proceedings in which a closed material application may be made to the court, end quote, which is the wording from section one of that act. This declaration would allow the government to apply for the proceedings to be carried out using the so-called closed material procedure that, under the civil procedure rules, allows the court to sit in private, without Belhaj or his legal representative present, so that the documents that impact on national security are not exposed. Belhaj was obviously not happy with the prospect of a closed material procedure, and so he resisted the Section 6 application by noting that the provision only applies to, quote, relevant civil proceedings, end quote, and that this definition specifically does not extend to, quote, Proceedings in a criminal cause or matter. End quote. And that is the key definition here. And so, while Belhage argued that because this related to a decision not to prosecute, it therefore represented proceedings in a criminal cause or matter, the government submitted that this is a judicial review, and so it falls under the definition of relevant civil proceedings. While the Divisional Court rejected Belhaj's argument, and the case has since been settled, it was felt that the issue was of sufficient importance to go before the Supreme Court, which is where we pick it up. In the end, the justices only decided the case by a slim majority of 3-2, to but Lady Hale, Lord Mance and Lord Sumption, who gave the lead judgment, found in favour of Mr Belhaj. To uncover the reasoning for that decision we have to return to the origins of the 2013 Justice and Security Act which was passed because the government was having to settle a lot of civil claims instead of contesting them and then having to reveal sensitive material in court where disclosure has negative national security implications. The reason that this was chosen to apply only in civil cases rather than criminal ones as well is that in a criminal case, the government has a much greater degree of control over the proceedings. For example, the prosecution can choose the material that it wishes to rely upon, and where they do not rely on certain sensitive material, disclosure can be limited on national security grounds. Ultimately as well, the government has the option to simply discontinue the prosecution if it so chooses. In the end, then, the closed material procedure is simply not necessary in the context of criminal matters, and that thought process can be extended to related judicial reviews. Nevertheless, a balance has to be achieved between that need to protect state secrets and the broader democratic requirement for an open justice system that does not hide away behind closed doors, but, so far as possible, is open to scrutiny by the general public. Therefore, any closed material procedure requires explicit authority from statute, and the Justice and Security Act cannot be interpreted too broadly. With that in mind, let's go back to the key phrase, proceedings in a criminal cause or matter, end quote, and consider how a judicial review before the High Court is supposed to fall within this definition. For a start, this case is a prime example of how a decision made by a public authority in the context of a criminal matter, can be subject to a judicial review, which is a civil proceeding. Thus, the two are linked together and cannot be thought of as completely distinct from one another. Getting into more detail, the terms cause and matter each have a specific legal meaning that derives from the Judicature Acts, and so while a cause refers to specific proceedings that go before a court, a matter, has a broader meaning that can refer to any generic legal subject, whether that is within the context of a specific case or an associated case instead. Applying this definition to the case, we can easily see that the decision by the DPP not to prosecute Sir Mark Allen was a criminal matter. The judicial review of that decision is an associated case and therefore can also be regarded as a criminal matter for the purposes of section six of the Justice and Security Act. If that had not been Parliament's intention, then the provision would only have referred to criminal causes and not also referred to criminal matters. Before we finished looking at the judgment itself, we should also briefly examine the dissenting judgments of Lords Lloyd-Jones and Wilson, who considered there to be a different purpose behind the legislation. They submitted that the aim of Section 6 of the Justice and Security Act was to ensure that the closed material procedure was not being used when a person's innocence or guilt was being decided upon. Criminal law is unique in that a guilty verdict can lead to a person being deprived of their liberty, and so there is special reason to ensure that this remains transparent. In a judicial review, those same stakes do not apply and so the argument follows that the exception in section 6 is not available. That more restrained interpretation was also used in respect of the key phrase criminal cause or matter, where the minority held that while a criminal cause relates to the actual proceedings that will lead to a conviction or an acquittal, a criminal matter only extends to other related applications that are directly associated with criminal proceedings, such as applications for bail or extradition, etc. In other words, the judicial review is an almost completely separate case entirely and cannot be seen to be falling within the same exception under Section 6 that has a much more limited scope. When it comes to analysing this type of case, we have to be careful not to immediately jump on our suspicions that the secret services are probably acting in a rather dubious manner and that the courts are there to step in and find against the government as a form of punishment. It is the job of the courts to apply the law in each case and that is more important than the particular interests of either party. Of course, there are constitutional principles at play here, especially in a case like this where the openness of the justice system in the UK potentially stands in opposition to certain interests of national security. This makes it very hard, if not impossible, to simply apply statute law in a vacuum. Nevertheless, the logical argument put forward by the majority does make some significant leaps in its reasoning that raises questions about their reading of the Justice and Security Act. We know that the exclusion of cases that are clearly criminal in nature was at least partially down to the greater flexibility the government has to withhold sensitive documents in that context but that same flexibility is less assured in judicial reviews, where the option to simply withdraw a prosecution does not exist. Indeed, the whole point of this case is that a prosecution wasn't brought in the first place. Even the definitions applied are probably a little too broad, as while the justices mostly agreed on what constitutes a criminal cause, the idea that a criminal matter is almost anything to do with a criminal case whatsoever is difficult to justify, especially in an area where Parliament had to be sure to tread carefully. It is true that this is not great draughtsmanship by the Parliamentary Council, and more could certainly have been done to clarify the circumstances in which a closed material procedure could and could not be used, but that is no reason to exploit the loose language for all it is worth. The minority were just much closer to the mark in applying the law in a more strict sense, but It is not impossible that the majority knew this and were either more sympathetic to the case being made out by Belhaj or, more likely, were sceptical of the government's excessive use of the closed material procedure to avoid confronting legitimate cases made out against it. This brings us to the more political side of the case and the questionable activities of the Secret Service and ministers throughout this whole affair. At the start of this episode, we mentioned that the case had been settled prior to this decision of the Supreme Court being handed down. And that happened in May when, while not admitting liability, the government conceded that its actions had contributed to the harm suffered by Belhaj and his wife. This settlement by the current government was in sharp contrast to the response from ministers in the previous Labour government, as the former Foreign Secretary Jack Straw maintained that he followed the correct procedure while Tony Blair stated that he knew nothing of the affair whatsoever until after he had left office. Whether the correct procedure was followed or not, and how plausible the deniability of the former prime minister is, the fact remains that there is something rotten at the heart of the way that the government carried out policy and the methods used by the secret intelligence service. This all happened when the government was trying to cosy up to oppressive regimes such as that of Muammar Gaddafi, and so whether Blair knew about this or not, the rendition of Belhaj was certainly helpful to the British foreign policy, albeit at the expense of torturing one man. The current Attorney-General, Jeremy Wright, spoke in Parliament about the need to make reforms to the way that ministers deal with such requests, as well as the awareness that operatives have of human rights concerns. Unfortunately, this is the equivalent of sending James Bond on a half-day training course about sexual harassment in the workplace, a token gesture that will have no long-term impact. The same can be said of the forthcoming investigation of the case by the Intelligence and Security Committee that meets in private but is still unlikely to be given the full picture by MI6. The problems in this area are institutional and will not be solved by giving agents a copy of the Geneva Convention, This case is a reminder that the interests of the government will always lean towards straining or even breaking core democratic principles such as human rights or the rule of law in favour of short-term political goals. The only way to combat this outside of dismantling some of the less accountable elements of the state is to be ever vigilant about the actions of those in power and it is within that context that the current decision makes sense. Closed material procedures are questionable, even at the best of times, but in a political climate where there is justifiable mistrust of authority, it is hard to argue with an attempt to limit their usage as much as possible. In an era of terrorist threats, that may occasionally be fair, but a failure to keep this in check is a more disconcerting threat, as it comes from within. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you want to keep up to date with what I'm doing, then remember to check out the website at uklawweekly.com. Also on Facebook, Twitter, uh, most of the social media, so make sure to find me on there as well. I'll be back with another case next week. but in the meantime, bye.